0: so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Alright, we're going to get started. How's everybody tonight? I hope, I hope everybody's well. Uh, Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. My name's Matthew Cressel, and I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow on the third Wednesday of every month, and uh, the reading series has been going strong since uh, the late 90s, and it has always been free since its inception. The only thing that we ask is that you please buy a drink, hard or soft, and support the bar. The bar has been having us here the whole time, and uh, we ask you just buy a drink and uh, tip your bartenders and... Uh, Give them a kiss if you want on the cheek. Shake their hand if you're, you I'm know. Not sure about that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ask them first. Always ask. Um, so we got we got uh, we got two great readers for you tonight. Um, before we uh, introduce them, I just want to have a brief announcement about our upcoming readers uh, next month, October twenty first. Nathan Ballingrud and Fran Wilde. November 18th, you could clap if you want, it's okay. Yeah. They like to hear it, especially if they're here. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. Yes. December 16th, Elizabeth Hand and C.S.E. Cooney. January, January 20th, Alana C. Meyer and Delia Sherman. Oh February 17th, Carola Dibble and Gemma Files. March sixteenth, Rio. Yours, is that how you pronounce it? I'm yours. Yours. yours is, I'm yours. Yours. Okay. And David Nickel, March sixteenth. Yeah. April twentieth. Do we? Oh, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. I thought we had a duplicate, but no. So and then uh, May eighteenth. I have. Wh- what? Who's May? Ellen Clages and Victor Laval. There you go. Wow. Victor Laval and Ellen Clages. So uh... we have a. a, a a lot of great readers coming up for you guys. Um, our our two readers tonight are, are Lawrence C. E. Connolly and Tom Monteleone. Lawrence tells me that he has some books for sale that, during the intermission after he reads, you can come up, buy the book, and uh, get them signed. So uh, Tom also has books for sale. Yes, in the
2: back of the room and try the shrimp. Right. That's yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs>
1: Don't eat the fish. Um, Lawrence Connolly's books include the novels Veins and Vipers, the first two books of the *Vein* cycle. Vortex, the third book in this series, was rele- released late last year. Three collections of his short stories have been published, Visions, This Way to Egress, and Voices. Voices was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award, Superior Achievement in a Fiction Collection. And uh, can you just remind us which two books you have for sale tonight? Voices. Voices. Vortex. And Vortex. So, uh, I am told that he's going to uh, recite one of his stories from memory. Here's Lawrence Connor.
3: Can I do that?
4: <laughs>
3: ah, yes, that'd be great. It's great to be. I had a new book come out, as Matt told you, uh, since my last visit. If you're interested in hearing more about it, I'll be glad to fill you in during the first break. My story tonight is about memory and writing and science fiction and fantasy and possibilities. It's called Beneath Between. It's from my collection, Voices. And I hope you're up for joining me on an adventure tonight, because I would like to read it to you from memory. It started when the storm returned. I was heading to New Jersey to address a writing group before returning home to Pittsburgh. I was tired and road-weary and in no mood for driving in heavy weather. And when a fishtailing car nearly forced me off the road, I decided to stop at a McDonald's and wait until the worst had passed. I bought a coffee and slipped into a secluded booth, noticing, as I did, that someone had left a paperback on the seat. It was Arthur C. Clark's The City and the Stars. And seeing it here brought back memories of reading it for the first time, sitting in my uncle's cabin, beside an open window, listening to waves break beyond the forest, and reading the story of a young man who left a going-nowhere life to find his destiny among the stars. But this wasn't that book. Now, the cover illustration of A Glowing City Beneath a Field of Stars was much as I remembered it. But the title of this book was not The City and the Stars. It was Against the Fall of Night. And the author was not Arthur C. Clarke, but simply Arthur Clarke. I opened the book to check the copyright, noticing as I did that the inside front cover and facing page were covered over with a dense cursive script that ran both horizontally and vertically across the pages. The writing continued on the next two pages, although here it serpentined around the list of titles by Arthur Clarke on the left and the title page information. On the right. The following pages, the title verso, the dedication, the half title, the fly leaves, they were all the same, covered over with a dense cursive script as if the writer had felt compelled to keep writing even after running out of blank or nearly blank pages. Now the writing inside the front cover was not difficult to read at first because the ragged margin of the vertical script did not overwrite the first few horizontal lines. But after that, the reading became difficult But by then, I was lost in the story. I read it straight through, and when I finally finished, sitting back to realize that the storm had passed, I felt as if I had awakened from a lucid dream. I bought a coffee to go, I put the book into my pocket, and I drove to New Jersey. And there, after a distracted presentation in the Monmouth Library, I asked the librarian to do a database search for Arthur Clarke's Against the Fall of Night. I don't see it, she said. Are you sure? Well, there's a 1953 Nome Press edition uh, by Arthur Clarke, Arthur C. Clarke, and there's a 1970 Pyramid edition. It looks to be a reprint of the Nome Press book. Uh, is there anything by Arthur Clarke, no middle initial C, any indication that he ever wrote under that name? No, nothing. I decided to show her the book. But when I reached for it, it wasn't there. I checked my other pocket. My wallet was there. No book. I figured I must have left it in the car, but when I went back to check, it wasn't there either. I considered backtracking to Delaware to see if I had left it in the McDonald's, but by then something came over me. It was a sense that I'd already passed too close to something better left alone. I drove home, and that night, unable to sleep, I set about transcribing from memory that entire handwritten story. It's a strange narrative. I cannot vouch for its authenticity, but I do not doubt its truth. I must begin to write it all down while it's still fresh. I'll lose it if I don't. I'm sitting in a McDonald's. It's right off Philadelphia Pike. It's raining like a bastard outside. I'm soaking wet. The lights are flickering. I don't know what I'll do if I find myself in darkness again. A moment ago, I sat down and saw myself, my reflection in the glass. I thought it was someone looking in, and I nearly crapped myself. Not good. Need to calm down write it all down. It all started when I decided to walk home alone. My former best friend offered to drive me, but I couldn't see spending another 20 minutes in the same car with her. God, I hate her. Oh, it has nothing to do with her selling another story to one of those A magazines, Asimov's Apex Analog. It doesn't matter what does. Is how she keeps reminding everyone about her success without ever mentioning it. Oh, yeah, it's in her every move, in her every gesture, in her every, well, you know, what editors really want is, and, well, the most important thing I know about characterization is, I used to really enjoy the writing groups. Not anymore. And today, after listening to her pontificate for 10 minutes straight, I knew I had to leave. I had my manuscripts with me, the same miserable blue pencil dog-ear drafts I've been carrying around with me since college, Uh, three short stories and one unfinished novel that always seems to self-destruct after the first 30 pages. I put them into the envelope, and I stood to leave. And of course, she called after me, something wrong. No, I'm fine. Well, you don't seem fine. Well, I'm sick, okay. Uh, well, let me drive you. No, I'll walk. I need to walk. And that was it. Well, almost it. She stood to follow, but I ran out the door. I ran all the way to Philadelphia Pike, and it was then that it hit me, stupid. You know what she's doing, don't you? She's talking about you. She's psychoanalyzing you in front of the writing group. Oh, yeah, I could almost see her doing it. Hand out, palm up, as if cradling some ineffable essence of the truth. Well, you know, we're often our own worst critics. She used to be my confidant, my soulmate, We went to college together, and we talked endlessly about becoming writers, and I even let her read some of my stories, which she said I should submit, and I told her, I'll get around to it. Well, if I were you, I'd do it now. Yeah, well, you're not me. Yes, but if, no time for ifs, life's just too busy. Yeah, life was always too busy. Uh, After college came work, and after that, life really closed in. You know, family life, professional life, the full but empty life of raising kids and starting a career. And the next thing I knew, I was pushing 40, and that's when I told her we should start a writing group. Yeah, she liked the idea, so we put out the call, calling all wannabes. Yeah, and the wannabes came. And then she started finishing her stories, and then she started submitting them, and then she started selling them, and then she was queen of the writing group. And what was I? The knave of procrastination. The joker. I was nothing. And realizing that made me run even faster along the edge of Philadelphia Pike, not stopping until I reached the parking lot of an L-shaped strip mall. There was a bookstore there. It was owned by this guy who knew everything there was to know about fantasy, science fiction, and horror. He had a little store that occupied a space between two nondescript shops in the southeastern end of the mall. And it always looked smaller on the outside than it did from within. But even on the inside, it seemed too small to accommodate the apparent vastness of its collection. Yeah, I used to try to test the size of that collection with impossible requests. The conversations usually went like this. Um, I'm looking for the uh, first issue of Eerie Magazine. <coughs> uh, which first issue of Eerie Magazine? <laughs> well, The horror comic, I think, was published by Warren. Oh, it it was, but uh, uh, do you mean the first commercial issue or the prototype? (laughs) What prototype? Now, he stroked his beard and he looked down the center aisle of the store, but he wasn't really looking. He was thinking. He was accessing that inexhaustible database behind his eyes. Well, the first commercial issue was actually issue two. Uh, The actual first issue was really a prototype that Warren had produced for a distribution meeting. You're joking. Uh, No, you can look it up. Archie Goodwin writes about it in Gore Shriek 5, 1988. I believe the title was The Warren Empire. You're serious. Oh, well, I'm always serious. Well, do you have that one? Which one, Gore Shriek 5 or Eerie 1? I decided to call his bluff. Both. Oh, yeah, well, you'll have to watch the register. It'll take me a minute to get them. He walked down the center aisle, and he was gone maybe five minutes, you know, but when he returned, he had both those magazines, each wrapped in a plastic sleeve, and, of course, I bought them. I was too dumbfounded to do otherwise The other requests followed, impossible ones. Um, Issue one of Carlton Comics' Reptilicus. Uh, January 1963 issue of Foray Ackerman's Spaceman magazine. An immaculate copy of the Ace Double Edition featuring Theodore S. Drockman's Cry Plague. I didn't want any of them. I was just trying to stump him, and I had to buy every one of those damn books when he produced them from that mysterious back room. After a while, I stopped going to the store. But now, here I was, crossing that parking lot against the darkening sky, trying to keep ahead of the rain. I pushed inside, and there he was. He was on the phone. Oh, well, maybe I can. Hold on. Well, I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I've been busy. Have you been writing? (laughs) No, (laughs) I wish. Well, listen, I'm in a jam. Any any chance you could uh, watch the register for me? any chance? Are you kidding? What are friends for? I was desperate for friendship, eager to feel wanted. He showed me how to latch the door just in case he wasn't back by closing and then a few minutes later I was behind the counter reading a copy of Theodore Sturgeon's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. The rain was hammering the storefront windows and the lights were flickering and once they went out and plunged me into a few seconds of darkness and when they came back on something Thumped in the back room. Now, it could have been the thump of a restarting compressor, but what was back there anyway? I got up. I walked down that center aisle, and I looked in that back room. Uh, There was some clutter, bucket and mop, trash can. No books. A second door led to a bathroom, but that was it. No mysterious collection. Not even any shelves. I turned to leave, and that's when I noticed the trapdoor. It was a square hatch in the floor. It was trailing a length of knotted rope for a handle. I pulled the rope. The hatch opened. Lights came on, illuminating the descending rungs of a ladder and two parallel rows of shelves full of books and magazines. I raced back to the front of the store. I latched the door. I turned the open sign to closed. And a moment later, I descended that ladder into a long, narrow space full of magazines on one side and books on the other. In front of me, hand-lettered signs read 1950, 1951, 1952, and onward into the more recent past. Behind me, similar signs, 1940s, 1950s, and onward To my left, a complete run of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction ran a little below eye level, while above them lesser magazines came and went, Macabre, Jungle Stories, Infinity, Impulse, and a magazine I'd heard about but never seen before, an ill-fated publication titled If. There were no missing numbers, no missing dates and the books were equally complete, arranged alphabetically by author with Asimov near the top, Van Vogt near the floor, and the seas running about eye level, and one of those books was Arthur C. Clarke's The City and the Stars. Yes, it was volume one of the Harbrace Paperbound library. This bookstore really did have everything. Now, all told, the shelves extended for about 200 feet. That was too long to be contained beneath the store above. But when I reached the end, I realized that my journey was not over because there in the floor trailing a length of knotted rope was a second square hatchway. I pulled the door, lights came on, and curiosity drove me down into a space that ran not quite parallel to the space above. Now the arrangement made sense since placing the levels parallel might have undermined the upper floor. Oh, it had all been carefully arranged. Once again, the latter occupied a gap between 1950 and 1949. Once again, a complete run of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction ran a little below eye level to my left, identical to the issues in the space above. Where were they? I read the title of the magazine through the spine or through through, through plastic. The magazine of fantasy. No mention of science fiction. Now, I knew from my friend in the bookstore that the first issue of the magazine, published in 1949, had been called the magazine of fantasy, but after that, the magazine's name had been changed, and science fiction had been added to broaden its appeal. But here was a complete run of the magazine of fantasy as if existing in some not quite parallel universe. And there were other changes, too, in the books. I found what should have been Arthur C. Clarke's The City and the Stars, but it was Arthur Clarke's Against the Fall of Night. Yet with the original illustration and cover design of the book that I had read as a child. Other differences. That ill-fated magazine, if it now had a run that rivaled that of the most successful science fiction magazines. The names of the greatest luminaries were on the spine. And one of those spines stopped me cold. Now, it's been a blessing or maybe a curse that I have a surname that I seldom encounter in the world at large, but here was that name looking back at me from the spine of the July 1989 issue of If Magazine right between Bova and Davidson. I took down the magazine. I opened it to the contents page. There was my complete name and the title of one of my unfinished stories, Alternate Paths. I turned to the story. I read the first page. It was mine. That is to say, the ideas were mine. The writing was more precise than anything I'd ever produced The introduction said that Alternate Paths was my third story for the magazine. The others were Parallel Lives from the January 1988 issue and The Doppelgang from the March 1987 issue. More significantly, the introduction said that my novel, Different Lives, would be published in the spring. I backtracked and got the other issues of the magazines. I moved forward and got the copy of Different Lives, and I continued on discovering that I had become quite prolific toward the end of the century, and by the time I reached the end of the corridor, I had an armload of books and magazines that did not exist in my world, and a plot was forming. I could take these home. I could transcribe them. I could become this writer. The lights flickered, reminding me of the storm raging a couple of levels above. I turned to leave. The ladder seemed impossibly far away. I moved toward it. The lights flickered again, and this time they went out. I waited for them to come back on. They didn't. I put the books and magazines down and began to feel my way along the shelves, hunting the ladder, and as I did, something thumped behind me in the corridor. It sounded like someone picking up those books and magazines that I had put down, and slowly at first, but picking up speed, moving toward me. I panicked. I ran, feeling along the shelves until my hands closed along the ladder, and then I climbed up and out, and then just to make sure that whatever it was down there didn't follow me, I slammed the hatch and pulled books and magazines from the shelves, building a paperback Karen as high as my knees. And then I ran down the second shelf line space and up the next ladder and out of the store. I latched the door. It was raining. I kept going. There was lights on across the way. I headed toward them. There was an Arby's there. I almost went inside, but then I saw someone sitting in a corner booth visible through the plate glass. I was the owner of the bookstore, and he wasn't alone. Someone sat with him. It was a woman. I couldn't see her face, but I could tell from her gestures that it was my nemesis, the queen of the writing group I pushed on to a McDonald's and I got inside. It was only then that I'd realized I'd left more than an armload of books and magazines back at the store. I'd left my manila envelope of unfinished stories, too. The woman behind the counter looked at me. Help you? Oh, yeah, coffee. I reached for my wallet, came out with Arthur Clark's against the fall of night. My wallet was in my other pocket. She put the coffee on the counter. Anything else? I opened the book and saw there were blank pages in the front. Do you have a pen? She took one from her pocket and put it on the counter beside the coffee I paid and headed to a secluded booth, flinching when I saw my reflection in the glass. I thought it was the thing from the bookstore following me. What had that been, anyway? another self, a possibility, a me who had been unable to put those books and magazines down when the lights went dark. I was used to such concepts. I'd once tried writing stories about not-quite-parallel worlds where the roads not taken were taken, places inhabited by not-quite-congruent selves. The weight of those books and magazines Lingers in my hands, and I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't put them down when the lights went dark. I still would have gotten out unless someone sealed me in. Lights are coming on across the way. The bookstore has power, but I can't go back. There's no going back. All that I have is the me that I am now. Everything moves forward from here. These pages are full. It's time to leave this book behind and start again. Against the fall of night, I must begin.
1: Great story, and all the more impressive that he did that from memory. Um, We're going to take a 10 or 15 minute break. Uh, As I said earlier, the authors have books for sale. Please come up, get a book, get it signed, and buy a drink. We'll we'll be back in uh, about 10 minutes with Tom Montagnone.
4: We're about to start. Hi, welcome back to Fantastic uh, Fiction at KGB. Hello, hello, shh. We're going to start. Oops. Um, I just want to thank everyone again for coming on and Datlow. We do this uh, every month. If you want to get on our mailing list, you can go to um, the website, Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Just Google it. And you can sign up for our mailing list if you like. And all we ever send is notices about this. Um, And I think we do that about twice a month. So... So Right, no spam. We hope. No, there shouldn't be. (laughs) Unless someone hacks us. (laughs) So anyway, our next reader... Is Tom Thomas F. Montalioni, although you said Tom Montlioni, but anyway, okay. Yeah, Thomas Tom, F. Monteleone. Yeah. Sold his first short story in nineteen seventy two. Since then there have been more than hundred others in magazines and anthologies. He's written I can't read this. Is this thirty? <laughs> I was like, I'm old. Thirty novels. Alright, I'm sorry, it's a typeface. <laughs> I use a typeface I shouldn't have. Um, he's written 30 novels, including the New York Times bestseller *The Blood of the Lamb*. Edited the award-winning *Borderlands* anthology series, won the Bram, Stoke, Bram Stoker Award four times in four different categories. Founded and helms the *Borderlands Press* writers boot camp. Loves to read his work to people like you. And. Um, Okay, I'm I'm, I'm reading everything you gave me here, including (laughs) Despite being dragged, kicking and screaming into his 60s and losing his hair, he still thinks he's dashingly handsome. (laughs) Humor him and greet him. him. Yeah,
2: I'll take the drink. Okay, um... This is really confining for me. When I read, I like to like walk around and bu- bug people. No, I can't do that. I can't see shit in this light. Um, last year, I, last time I was here, I did a story with, um, I think it was like, 10 different characters, 10 different accents, but I'm just gonna do one tonight, okay? All right, this is, and uh, by the way, that last performance was incredible by Larry, thank you. Um, I don't like what I write enough to memorize it. So So that's really amazing. (laughs) Wow. Okay, this is a story um, I read here years ago, first time I was at KGB. It's called Horn of Plenty. The narrator is a 300-pound black jazz musician, and I'm going to try to be that guy. Oh, my God. It's called Horn of Plenty. (laughs) You know, things ain't never been the same since Rolling Blades found that horn. But you know, when you think about it, (laughs) maybe it was the other way around. Okay, hold it. Let me take five let you get all up to speed. I'm going to tell you about the group, stuff like that. We called ourselves the George Thurston Quintet. Because way back when we got started, that was the wizard thing to do. You were the boss. You named the group after yourself. (laughs) And says, my name's George Thurston. The engine pulling his train. (laughs) Well... I think you can dig it. We were never the bullet at the top of anybody's charts, but we always been cool. Albums, CDs, yeah, we had a few. And we opened for most of the greats. But I got to tell you, I ain't the best ivory, but hey, I ain't going to embarrass myself either. We played the college circuit, big clubs in the small cities, Small ones and the bigs. Every once in a while, our agent get us to warm up for the big main heat. George, Thurston, Quintet, we was the real. Five good jazz men. No Gillespie's or Coltrane's in our bag, but we were good, Jack. We were professionals, and sometimes we had our moments, if you know what I mean. Like that chemistry thing would just happen. Especially with Satchel Ross, our sax man, and Roland Razor Blades, our trumpet. <laughs> I never tried to say who between them better on his axe, because I never wanted to. Blade? <laughs> he played a horn that was so sharp, so clean, y'all swear his sound make you bleed. His solos cut through the nauseous crowd, make them shut up, start to really listen. And he didn't flirt with no high notes like Ferguson. He didn't have that throat-air, mellow stuff like old Jack Sheldon. And he was never much for that far-out phrasing that <laughs> Miles pioneered, but Roland, he made make them old standards jump up and do tricks. And on his sex Satchel, (laughs) he could play like he had lightning in his fingers, if you can dig it. He get them in a blur. Notes pour from that alto like a waterfall. Would have made Bird proud. And you know what? We went on for years like that. Town to town, gig to gig, until like I said, Roland found at home. <laughs> Never forget it. We had a closing act in a KC club called the Oracle, and it was a typical cow town night in July. Even with the air conditioners grinding, humidity had that crowd sweating out every friggin' note. We finished our first set. We felt like we'd been working in the sauna. Couldn't wait till we get out that stage door and have a couple smokes. And right there, when we walk out on the floor under the exit sign, Roland spot this old instrument case. Fake alligator, frayed stitching, cheap plastic handle, pawn shop shit. <laughs> Look here, he said. Somebody done forgot the axe. So he popped them latches, opened the case, and he got a big surprise. Instead of a piece of beat-up brass, he found the most beautiful horn any of us ever seen. Not to say it was strange-looking, huh, it was, but never seen a trumpet like that before. First thing you noticed was its color—blue, so deep, it almost black—and polished up like ten coats of lacquer on a Chinese table. Not so much as reflected the light as it kind of swallowed it up. Then let it back out to leak out to whoever might be looking at it. Weird, man. So you had to assume it was made of some kind of metal, but it just didn't feel like it. It was light and airy and dense but heavy too. And oh oh yeah, no matter what the temperature or the season, that home always oh, cool to the touch. Hard to explain. Anyway, nobody showed up to claim it that night or on any other when it got kind of time to get on the bus for our next engagement, (laughs) that home went right along with us. Finders keepers, Jim, plain and simple. So that night, while we on the road to St. Lou, Roland, he done take it out for a test drive on his own. We all dozing as he coaxed a few improvs out the business end and I'm telling you, Soon as them notes start to flow, we all woke up like a bunch of bears in a cave. We just caught a whiff of the honey. That music, thick and sweet and hot, like a woman getting excited. He grabbed us by the ears and wouldn't let go. We sat there in the bus listening to rolling blades play a horn like he ain't never played in his life. It was like that horn became a part of him, growing out of his hands, his lips. He played on into the night, and time fell away in lazy coils of sound. (laughs) When Roland finally put that horn away, he was smiling like that cat they called a Cheshire. Looks like I got me a new ax, he said, and he did. He became the best, plain and simple, and he'd drag us along with him. And on those nights when everything was just cool, when everybody cooking with gas, rolling and Satchel would hit on it. They play off each other's line like it was rehearsed. But I am telling you, it was some of the most bee-bopping two-man improvs I ever heard. I mean, it was sweet, Jim. <laughs> and we all knew it was because of Roland and his horn of Midnight Blue. So for the next year or so, we got hotter and hotter like a cheap laser jack up the charts we went cds started selling like they never had mp3s on the audible we getting the best gigs in the biz we knew what had changed us but nobody talked about it and Roland, he ain't the kind of dude to make a big deal out of it anyway we played and the world paid. It was that simple. <laughs> of course, we've been long round enough to know it couldn't last because you get hot and then you not. Know. So when we made the most of that extra bread we sliced in and decided not to worry about what might come next, or <laughs> well, worst I figured is we slide back to where we started, which wouldn't be so bad. I was wrong. At first I figured, eh, increased travel schedule, lures of playing the big shows in places like Vegas, Monaco, shit, even Paris. Or maybe it was the Chicks or the Jack or, eh, look, I mean, what I'm trying to say, we are human. Rolling blades, just as much a man as any and we all had our fun. But it looked like it was catching up to him faster than the rest of that quintet. Months went by, Roland, he started losing weight like he on one of them farms, you know? I mean, and he wasn't that big roly jump guy from the jump. Not like me and my extra hundred. But now Roland, he looking positively lean, man. I mean, home players, they got these big puffed cheeks comes with the chops. <laughs> the Rollins, they, they fading away. They sinking like his eyes into his face, kind of looking long, kind of like a horse's head. And his complexion, they're changing too. It's going from that nice warm chestnut brown to the sallow gray. He looking like old Navy boat needing some paint.
4: <laughs>
2: in other words, he looked like he checking out some timeshares at one of Death's condos. So one night, after absolutely smoking gig at London's Brom Club, <laughs> we riding a limo back to the Savoy. I look at Roland as he picked himself a whiskey and a water from the bar. Okay. You want to tell me, Roland, what's up? <laughs> well, George, show sure ain't my dick. <laughs> he smiled, and there was so much of his teeth showing, it was like I was getting a preview of what he'd be looking like as a skull. <laughs> Come on, Roland. You know what I mean. He looked around the limo. Satch, other guys, they zoned out, but Roland whispered anyway, Son, something got me, George. I can feel it. it cancer or something. He didn't answer me after that. He just sipped his whiskey, stared out that window as that old big stretch punched a hole in the night. I waited, then... Okay, I'm gonna give it to you straight, but you gotta hear me out, Square Biz. Or oh, you fucking kidding me? Come on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Pause for commercial.
2: I'm going back a little bit there. Okay, I'm gonna give it to you straight, so you gotta hear me out, Square Biz. You got it. I said. Nodding towards that old beat-up case holding his horn, he he hinted a small grin. Now, George, ain't none of us dummies. Even though we ain't talking about it, we all know I ain't playing my ass off to that horn, John to (laughs) act, He right about that. It's one of those things nobody ever seemed to want to bring up. Didn't make it no less true. So I just said, Okay. Roland sighed, and then he said, Look here, here's a fact, Jack. That home plays me a lot more than I play it. He paused to uh, knock back the rest of his whiskey and let that sweet sting slide down. And then he went on, Every time I put that thing to my lips, I feel it. It's like alive somehow, and it, it attaches itself to me. It's like them funny fish we saw on the Discover Channel that time, remember? I nodded. Anyway, that ain't all. Sometimes, sometimes that all reaches into me and sexy, and all the things I carry around all my life, and please putting it into the tunes, all the hurting, all the laughing, all the times I've been pissed off, all the times I get my nut with a bro, and all that shit in between. That's a lot of shit, I said something. In between, I mean. Straight, but it's the real Georgia. And here's the final line of that contract. I know I can't keep letting it do this to me, because sooner or sooner, there ain't going to be nothing left. Man, what you saying? Like I said, we ain't no ventriloquist act. Ain't no dummies here. Well, you got to do something. You just get rid of that (laughs) axe. No, no, no. (laughs) Fucking way, Jack. Somebody else did. <laughs> maybe, he shrugged. Or maybe, maybe he was looking for, what they call it on that show? New host. Yeah. Roll in, you talking shit now. I reached for my whiskey. Poured a couple of fingers neat. Reloaded my old friend, too. You talking like that horn's alive. Not, not exactly, but close. All right, George, here's what I think. I think something that's every man's ever played that thing is still alive, hanging out in all the curves and twists of that horn. Man, I don't just think it. I know it. Well, that's true he <laughs> you know what you gotta do. I try not to focus on what he really telling me. No, he can't chuck that axe, boss. He never know what else we would be dumping. Or who, I said. Which brings me to part two, said Roland. Part two or what? What I've been figuring I's got to say sooner or later. Go on. Look, George. In case I cash out of this game, you got to promise me my ex, he stayed with the band. What you talking? Well, you, there ain't no band. Roland smiled, and again, there was like that bone air preview of what coming. <laughs> yeah, like y'all take up hobbies after I'm gone, right? Look. I don't want to be thinking about shit like that, right now. We in London, we riding the high hog. Oh yeah, right, boss. You just promised me anyway, okay? (sighs) Okay, I said after a pause. We solid on that. He looked at me with a small, tight grin. Solid. And that was the last time we ever talked about that stuff. The months, they take on by. Rolling, he getting thinner and weaker till we almost see right through him. Except when he on stage, that's when he burned like a road flare. And to tell the truth, I, I don't think any of us was all that surprised when a hotel maid in Frisco found him one morning. All curled up like one of them mummies they find in them urns once in a while. Yeah, we saw that on the Discovery Channel too. So here we was without a horn man. Not just a trumpet player, but a horn man. Because that's what Roland was. For a while, even the thought of replacing him seemed stupid. We ain't the same. Without him, we never be. And it wasn't like I never had to replace any parts in the quintet. Shit. We've been through drummers over the years. I've changed bass preliers, more to my socks. But it was going to be different with Roland. Hmm. Without him, it seemed like Satchel, he got nothing to play off of. Made him sound like just another... Second line alto. I couldn't stop smiling as I remember when I'd have them both up there in the spots. I could just ride those keys and smile, watch them trade solos like hot potatoes, faucet each other higher and higher. You think their cheeks gonna explode. Then suddenly, they weave a melody together by some wicked improv. They both come out on top. It was a thing to hear, if you can dig it. And I think that you could. Long story short, we went through three trumpet guys in a year. Turned out all of them playing licks from a fucking can. Audience, they hip to it too. We start losing the big gigs and I knew that I edge my special sound is gone. Some nights, when I couldn't get away from that truth staring me in the face, I'd be in my hotel room, I'd pull out my steamer trunk. It's a big, ugly ass thing, full of crap I just can't deep six. Posters from the primo gigs, yeah. Newspaper clips, snapshots, <laughs> letters from old girlfriends. Junk from when I was a kid, even my mama. But jammed in the bottom left corner, Roland's horn in that cheap case. I couldn't even bring myself to touch it. But I always looked down on it the way folks come to a grave and stare at the marker. But look, things kept going downhill like they all roller skates and didn't seem like it's gonna get any better. Got to be a year and a half since Roland died and we in Cleveland doing the small club and poetry circuit, when my latest trumpet told me he leaving us for dead. He going back to the Apple for studio work. shit. Something like this ever happened, I've been thinking we folding the tents. But Sash talked me out of it, cause he, he hated session work in the studio even more than I did. I figured one last time i hit some clubs in Cleveland to see who available. So club to club I ramble, night got old, music worse. It was like every note telling how oh, knew I coming and blew his worst notes the minute I fell through the door just to make sure I hipped how bad he was. So finally, I check into a small, dark place. Now, it's known for its progressive fusion stuff by the locals, and I've been avoiding it, because Thurston Quintet, we is, like, strictly traditional. You know what I mean? I got no, no kick with the progressive people. Hell, years ago, traditional jazz. It was progressive. But, Dig, you got to be a damn fine musician to play that new chef very well. A lot of young bloods they get tempted, use progressive as an excuse for not learning their chops. Like a dude trying to write free verse for her to write some rhyme and meter. Or some phony asshole in Washington Square. He throwing cans of paint on the campus. He ain't never done a still life. Right, but a lot of the progressive guys, they all talk about how they got to express themselves. Most of you sound like a bunch of yaks farting at a party. Paul Desmond, many years ago now, he told me, you know what, George, I'm becoming an arch-conservative. (laughs) ever since it got so fashionable to sound so bad. (laughs) Yeah, Paul. These Bloods, they want to play the new cool, the new stuff? (laughs) They better be damn good. Anyway, anyway, I'm in the joint watching more fuzzy-faced kids expressing themselves and I open up a fresh pack of Chesterfields. I order a highball from the waitress, after I explained to her what it was, <laughs> then just sat back to listen. First two groups, they aimed the synthesizer, and they sounded like a hundred others tried before them. Next group, trio, bass, keyboards, trumpet. Bass player, he less experimental, not clock and fall, and the guy on the fender Rose. Self indulgent (laughs) but he has some chop. But when that trumpet player started, I began to listen. Instead of the usual collection of random squeaks and squawks, he came on with a liquid, smooth, melodic line, almost seemed out of place, out of sync with his guys. And he even the crowd, they pick up on it. They acted like they didn't know whether they should like it or not. I mean, cause like it was pleasing to listen to. Not exactly that in sound those days. So I sat down, I caught the whole act, and the skinny black kid with the horn was like a lighthouse in the fog, if you can dig it. And I think that you can. And they closed the... Less than overwhelming applause. They move off stage to pack up at a table. I made my move. All three watch me like alley cats in a headlight. What's this show going to fat and bald and grandpa want with them? Excuse me, I said to this trumpet player. Well, he didn't say nothing, but he's trying to assemble a nice hostile face. Hey, you play some nice horn, I said. What's your name? He stared at me for a minute, adjusted that do-rag on his head. Steele. Malcolm Steele. Why, who wants to know? <laughs> I do. I extended my hand to shake. I'm George Thurston. S- George Thurston? You, <laughs> you ain't that man with the quintet. I ain't. I thought I was. Steele shook my hand. He shook it vigorously. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry, man. Didn't recognize you. Oh, you you like those? Huh? That's the shit. I smiled again. Even though I was old, fat, I still one of them. No, I like your chops especially, Malcolm. Then I looked at the other two guys and tried to smile. Did a bad job at that. <laughs> yeah. Look, I listen. I don't want to be rolling no hand grenades under your dough, but uh, just take this. I pulled my card from my jacket pocket, scribbled our hotel number on it. I said, "Here's a call if you want to talk." Yeah. that what? Later. You got the number. I turned and split as fast as I could. I didn't want to hear what Steele was saying to those guys. Later on, I wonder whether or not he called. And I had to smile when he phoned that same night. I told him on the phone, plain and simple, I need a horn, man. And he said he was interested. So I said, you come on in and sit with us at rehearsal next afternoon. Well, there's only one problem, man. Don't worry about it. If you can play that new stuff, you can play our kind of music. I laugh. No, it's not that. Well, we talk about it when you come by. Next day, we all set up, run through a few tunes, just warm ups. Malcolm Steele, he ain't posted. Satch, he give me a I told you so look, and I'm thinking I've been had. Maybe I should ask him what that problem was, why he's still on the home. Then suddenly I heard his voice, excuse me, swinging around from the keyboards. I saw him standing in the doorway, and instead of them three sizes too big T-shirt and those fucking baggy pants the night before, he wearing the tan uniform of a parcel delivery driver, hands deep in his pocket. He said he had trouble getting off to work early, and I said, that's okay. Fumbled through some introductions to the rest of the crew. He looked nervous and yum, not very hip at all. Big difference from the previous night. So I invited him to sit down on a few tunes, and he just looked at me. And that's when I realized he carrying, he ain't carrying his home. I asked him if he changed his mind. Oh no. No, that's not it at all. It's, it's that hitch I told you last night. He looked around the rest of the group awkwardly. Hey, can, can we talk about this alone? Take five, guys. D did a quick fade to the bar. Didn't have to talk him into that shit. And I looked at Malcolm Steele as I fired up a Chesterfield. So give, kid. <laughs> I ain't got no axe, man what I see you playing last night, a sweet potato? He grinned. Hey, no, man, that's Tyrone's bass player. He, he plays Little Horn, too. So you mean to tell me you don't own a piece? Yeah, that's the right of it. I didn't say anything for a minute, just kind of concentrated on the smoke from my cigarette. But now you know as well as me What I'm thinking. Thing was, do I really want to do that? Do I want to give that kid this kind of choice? So I'm just no good to you, Mr. Thurston. Don't you talk like that and you can call me George. He nodded. I might have something you can use. His face brightened for a second, then he caught himself. For real? I nodded. I told him to sit tight. You listen to the guys jam for a while. So after a quick ride to the hotel for Roland's horn, I'm back. When I handed it to him, his face a mixture of amazement and confusion. I ain't I ain't never seen a horn like this. <laughs> it's okay, son. I don't think nobody else ever has either. He couldn't stop looking at it, and all he could manage to say was a half-whiffered thanks, man, and he kept staring into the depths of that home's midnight surface. "'Hey, look, you know Lullaby of Birdland?' I asked as I sat down behind the keys. He nodded. "'Okay, let's give it a run. One, two, and...' We rode him through that melody twice just to give him a chance to warm up, and even though he sputtered a few times, he managed to recover pretty nice. Then we slid into one of the satchel solos, which he done pipe out with no real enthusiasm. He handed it over to Malcolm Steele. Kid picked up on it, started to improvise, and then he sounded different than I remember. The liquid smoothness, that's still there, but it's being pushed now. Leading edge that suggested power, bite. Steal he don't play on he getting some confidence once he feel us cooking with him and it became a sweet thing to hear i look up at satch just as he taken a breath and he shot me that quick old smile then he played with some juice best i heard since rolling frog i rode them keys while tat satch and that kid they took a night flight to a place where The rest of us couldn't go. I was actually getting a little weepy when they finally came back, and we closed out with a run on the melody. Everybody, everybody all smiles after that, not a wipe away a tear, too. We played a half dozen more numbers, last two being stuff Malcolm claimed he didn't even know. (laughs) Yeah, he played them like he'd written them. Style and passion and something more that sharp edge I heard on Roland's past nights. When we took a break, we knew we had a quintet again. You could tell without saying a word. And I didn't have to tell I'm Steele either. That kid, he knew he was in. And he looked like he planned to be there. Take off them delivery truck rags. No shit. Other guys, they congratulated him, shook his hand, took him off to the beef off to the bar for a beer. I just sat there behind my keys. I'm looking at that hole sitting on the kid's chair. One night, I remember, Roland, we owned a stage, and he held it up to the light, and he peered into that business, end and he grinned. then he talked to it. Think I call you the hone of plenty. I remember like it was five minutes ago. Slowly I got up. I turned to join the others at the bar, but I paused for one more sec. I looked back at that home, laying there like some sleek jungle cat waiting for the next meal to come sauntering by. And I knew I had a big decision to make. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about whatever's going on upstairs. I beat the shit out of him. You beat the the shit out of of him.
4: Anyway, that was great. Hope you'll all come back Oops. Hope you'll all come back next month.
2: Yeah. And um oh and actually there are more books
4: i the been right? I know Lawrence has more books you know more books. And tell him to try the VO. <laughs> try, try the VO <laughs> <laughs> But first buy the book. And then and then has me.
0: <laughs> you have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajin Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.